Church, how good it is to remind ourselves that we are a gathered assembly. We are a gathered assembly of saints that are here because of our risen King. That this is most certainly a political statement. The political statement that King Jesus, He rules over all His creation. We are His people. And He is the true King of Kings. And so it's with great confidence that we can sing and gather as His saints and great expectation uh, that we can come to His Word knowing that as He is alive and reigns, He speaks this morning. And He desires to speak to us through His Word. So let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis 37. Next week we will begin a series in the book of Exodus. The last two weeks we've been pausing, dipping into two portions of Genesis that will thematically help us, hopefully, Think well through some of the themes that will be unfolded in the book of Exodus. Last week we were in Genesis 22, considering God's provision. This morning we find ourselves in Genesis 37, considering His providence. If you're using one of the hardback Bibles in the seat in front of you, and you're looking to find the book of Genesis, it will be toward the beginning, specifically page 29 this morning, is where you'll find our text. Let's read and hear God's Word together, beginning in Genesis 37. Verse 1, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And then he dreamed another dream. And told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is your dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind you pray with me as we consider God's Word? Father, we do ask that You would help us, that You would be faithful to Your promise to open our eyes that we might see, to soften our hearts that we might receive, and to bend our wills towards Yours through the ministry of Your Spirit and Your Word. Lord, help us to see the good authority of Your Word and that You bring it before us this morning, not only declaring that You are all-powerful, but that You are most gracious. Lord, we pray that You would help us in this and that You would cause us to see the things that are true. Most specifically, Father, help us to see Your Son and how the goodness of Your authority is most clearly seen in the gracious provision of our King Jesus, we pray. Amen. I know it's a bit cliche, but it remains true. A picture is worth a thousand words. Some of you know this very well when you've been trying to hear instructions, and then somebody simply just draws you a very simple picture, and suddenly it all makes sense. Uh, We know this to be true. We understand this if we try and teach others, how illustrations can become really the living examples that become really the cohesive mortar to help us retain and understand critical truths. And part of the reason why I love the Old Testament so much and why we ought to give attention to it is because God designs and God intends to use images and tones and pictures of New Testament doctrine contained in Old Testament accounts. And the life of Joseph is certainly one of these instances, a picture that's worth thousands of words. 
Because it's through Romans 8.28 that we've already heard this morning that we hear and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who were called according to His purpose. And it's by reading of Joseph that we're given flesh and blood examples of what all things actually means. Through the life of Joseph, we are introduced to this biblical teaching of God's providence. And when I say providence, I'm referring to the biblical teaching and the scriptural declaration that God, He is the creator of all things, and in His great power and in His great wisdom, He upholds, directs, and governs all creatures and things from the least to the greatest. That is God's providence. Through Joseph, we are reminded that the reality of suffering and evil must contain, be contained under that umbrella of all things. Not only are we reminded through Joseph, we know by our very own lives and the experiences that we live, these reminders, these bitter events that awaken us to the fact that suffering and evil are not just things out there, in Bible stories, or in news feeds. But often, these bitter events seep into our own lives, and we're forced to ask the very question, what does all things actually mean? So the life of Joseph becomes this wonderful word picture of what the Apostle Paul would say thousands of years later to the church at Philippi. Where he would say, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. And in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So what we have in Genesis 37, in the remaining chapters really of the book of Genesis, is this slow, unfurling reality of God's providence working together all things for good for God's great purposes. Chapter 37, we're taking this morning just kind of as a segment, but I would encourage you to read on through chapter 50. But chapter 37 is helpful because it essentially is a preview of everything that's going to come in the the following chapters. It's a foreshadowing of everything that's going to unfold. It's the seed form of what is going to bloom in the remaining account. Because the very themes that you find in the, the remaining chapters are found here in 37. Suffering, evil, blessing, humiliation, exaltation. All of them are contained here and they're going to be filled out in the rest of the narrative, serving really, as I said, as more or less a preface for what's to follow. And most importantly, it's through Joseph's life that we learn something more of one of the great themes of Scripture. When God appears to be absent, And when evil appears to be triumphant, God's people can rest upon His most wise and holy providence. When evil appears to be triumphant, God appears to be absent. God's people can rest upon His most holy and wise providence. Look how this unfolds, and it's seen, first of all, through family strife and division. That is true, and it's seen through family strife and division. Just in the first 11 verses we've just read. Now, as we read through the narrative of Scripture, we often find that the characters that are woven into the unfolding story of God's plan are not all that exemplary. In fact, they're often crooked, faltering, deceptive, and weak. This is yet... Another reminder that God's ways are not our own. In the span of 11 verses, just notice what we're told about this family. Verses 1 and 2, we're clued into the absolute folly of Joseph. In some ways, you could make the case that these brothers brought the bad reports that Joseph is giving upon themselves. Chapter 34, their rash behavior. Chapter 38, how they choose to lead themselves and their families. It would 
warrant Joseph telling his father. But the word for report that's here in verses 1 and 2 is most often used within the rest of Scripture in the sense of a, a negative or an untrue report. It would seem that Joseph is misrepresenting his brothers, that he's telling partial truths, that he's maligning them and their behavior. And siblings often have a brilliant talent for this, telling half-truths, leaving out key details, running to mom and dad and saying, do you know what they've done? So much so that a, a wise parent will eventually begin to ask, and what did you do? Knowing that that is most often how these things play out. What we're meant to see here, just in the first two verses, is that Joseph is not sinless. Do not read this narrative as he is the innocent, sinless, perfectly righteous man. The stripe of, chapter, of this chapter is set off in part by a 17-year-old boy who foolishly and repeatedly provokes his brothers to anger through his bad reports. The folly of Joseph, but the strife has also got to include the favoritism of Jacob. You see that in verse 3. The narrator tells us straight away. He loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. If you zoom out a little bit farther, you'll find this really isn't new. Favoritism, it's become the generational sin of Jacob's family. Think back to what we know so far. Esau loved, or excuse me, Isaac loved Esau more than Jacob. Rebekah loved Jacob more than Esau. Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. And now Jacob loves Joseph more than the rest of his sons. What makes this even worse is that this favoritism is more or less personified through a custom-made coat of many colors. The robe was not just simply a symbol of the father's love. It was a token of status. It not only said, son, I love you, it declared, son, you are the heir. You're the favored son of all my sons. Culturally, a robe like this would have been worn by the heir, the one who was to receive the inheritance of the father, the double portion of the family inheritance. And here is Joseph, not the oldest brother, but the second youngest brother of the favored wife, sporting his coat of many colors. This would be like your father taking out a copy of his will, which outlined your massive inheritance, printing that will, silk screening it upon a t-shirt, and you proudly wear it to every family function, asking not only to pass the potatoes, but have you seen the shirt dad made me? That, in essence, would be the provocation personifying the favoritism that Jacob is giving to this boy, Joseph. This coat was a token of not only his love, but his favoritism, and most certainly his inheritance given to this favored son. This strife, because of folly, because of favoritism, but it also is fueled in verses 4 through 11 because of the hatred of the brothers. Did you hear the repeated word, as we just read that a few moments ago, in verses 4 through 11. Look back and just see if the word jumps out at you off of the page. Verse 4, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Verse 5, they hated him even the more. Verse 8, they hated him even more. Verse 11, this hatred gives way to outright jealousy. This burning progression of hate and rise of jealousy tells us that they did not simply want what Joseph had, a father's love and inheritance. They wanted to ruin him. They wanted Joseph to have nothing. It's clear from the text that this hatred is pushed beyond the boiling point in part because of these dreams that Joseph maybe wisely or unwisely begins to unveil these dreams to these brothers. The first dream is in verses 5 through 8, and it really takes place out in the fields. Common images, common labor, what these boys would have been doing. 
Not even the most dense brother, and there's always one, not even the most dense brother could miss the point. Joseph is having dreams about being the exalted one while the brothers are the ones who are bowing in reverence. It's inescapable. They hate him even more. The second dream, verses 9 through 11, it's up in the stars. This dream goes far beyond his visions of grandeur because the sun and the moon and the 11 stars there, they're bowing down to Joseph. Really, Joseph? 11 brothers, a father, and a mother, they're bowing down to you? Now keep in mind, just in passing, these dreams are true. And they shall come true. Joseph would rise to such a position of prominence that not only his own family would bow before him, but he will be second in command of all of Egypt and literally millions will be dependent upon him. However, the means by which this exaltation would come to Joseph is unknown to Joseph at this point. The remaining chapters of Genesis show the promised exaltation of Joseph through difficulty, suffering, evil, injustice, and pain. For this reason, every Christian ought to pay very close attention to what is being announced here. Because the Bible speaks, Christian, of your exaltation as well. If you are united to Christ, you are risen with Him, and you shall be glorified fully through Him. Psalm 37 is true. The meek will inherit the earth. The kingdom of heaven shall come, and the righteous ones who are made righteous by the righteous King shall rule. We shall even judge angels. There's exaltation in your future as well, Christian. And upon reading this and hearing this, many have assumed and taught that to become a Christian, well, that means having heaven now. All your troubles melt away. Immediate promises of blessings and power and happiness and riches, those are yours because you're a Christian and you should expect them to be yours. This message really becomes distorted into a message of before Christ, my life was so difficult, but now in Jesus, everything is great. Now, you can either respond one or two ways to that. If you are a Christian, you can think you're an absolute idiot, and I don't understand what world you're living in. Or you can say, maybe I just don't have enough faith. Maybe I don't understand what it means to be a Christian. Maybe they're the mature ones, and I'm the immature ones. And we can become very tripped up over this sort of teaching. And this is not a new mistake. It's not just the recent prosperity gospel that some of us know and see or even have been saved out of. It's been wrongly applied for generations. This is not a new mistake. I found Martin Luther in his writings and teaching here to be helpful when he talks about a theology of the cross versus a theology of glory. And Luther would write, that the cross is not simply the declaration of how sinners are made right with God, but a revelation of how God deals with those whom He loves. In short, the path of Christianity is blessing through suffering, not blessing the blessing of avoiding suffering. Christianity does promise a crown for all of God's people, but it also says, take up your cross and follow me. And the cross most certainly demonstrates this reversal of the curse of sin and the means of true blessing. That which should have been our greatest judgment now becomes the, the very avenue to our greatest blessing and greatest mercy. But the cross does not evaporate. Evil, sin, and suffering right here, right now. Instead, the very circumstances and people are now the means by which God is able to bring about His gracious and good will. Church, it means that the pain and loss and suffering of evil are not working 
against God's purposes. God and His sovereignty is working these things for His purposes and for, Christian, your good purposes. And so as we read the account of Joseph and Genesis and as we prepare to move into Exodus, we cannot lose our grip on the unfolding plot line that's here. This is a family full of strife, but this is a family to whom God has made tremendous promises. Jacob's the son of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham, to whom God promised that through his seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And at this very point, knowing that lineage, every reader should be asking, how can blessing come through such striving? How can God accomplish good purposes through such hostility? Will the hatred and striving of men overturn the purposes of God? Because as you're just reading through the narrative, that is what you should be asking. God's promised this, but look at what's happening. How is this book going to end? Well, the question's furthered through the brothers scheming and plotting. The brothers' burning hatred gives way to jealousy, as we read in verse 11, which gives way to conspiring, Joseph's ruin, which gives way to the deception of Joseph's father. Look back at verse 12. Now, his brothers went to the pasture to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel, Jacob, said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, I'll send you to them. And he said to them, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. A man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They've gone away, for I've heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar. And before he came near, near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue them out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty, and there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, myrrh, on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother of our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. And then Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped it the robe in blood, and they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it's your son's robe or not. He identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol, to the grave, that is, to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him, Joseph, 
into Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Notice the progression of this deception and of this evil. Let's kill him and hide the body. Verse 20. Let's not kill him directly. Let's just abandon him to the elements. Let's not kill him or abandon him. Let's profit by selling him into slavery. Let's deceive our father by leading him to believe that Joseph is most certainly as good as dead. So the plot line of Genesis 37 is driven forward by family strife and the scheming and deception of these brothers. All of this is meant to lead us to this one very important question. Maybe the same question that you have asked of your own life very recently. Where is God in all of this? That does lead us to the final consideration that we must wrestle with here in Genesis 37. Not only family striving, not only brothers scheming, but a God who is upholding and directing. Perhaps you notice God is not mentioned at all by name in Genesis 37. The chapter is filled with mentions of Joseph. Brothers are repeatedly called out. Dreams, hatred, jealousy, slavery, deception. But no mention of Yahweh. So as we read this, we are meant to ask, is the life of Joseph simply one of a man at the mercy of his circumstances and the scheming of others? Is Joseph just the boat being spun around by the currents of life and he is subject to whatever comes his way? Is the bad stuff the result of the brothers and any good stuff that comes later, well, that's the God thing? Is that where to think? Are we to think that, okay, perhaps this God is willing, but he's unable to prevent these events? This wasn't God's will. He just couldn't do anything about it. Careful. Or is this God able, but unwilling to intervene? Is that what we're meant to hear? These are the important questions, friends, that we need to wrestle through and to be clear on. And if you're not a Christian, these are especially important questions. What kind of God is the God of the Bible? What kind of God do your Christian friends worship? At its root, this is an introduction to the theme of providence, which dominates the entire story of Joseph. It sets up the account of Exodus, and it culminates in the coming of Christ. What we are to keep clear before us is the admission that God is equally present in the favoritism, the betrayal, the abandonment, and the slavery as He will be in the positions of influence, of power, and of favor that are coming along Joseph's life. Because Joseph, he's going to end up in Potiphar's house as a servant. But if you know the story, he will also be falsely accused, slandered, and maligned, and sent to prison. And he'll be abandoned and seemingly forgotten in prison for 13 years. Eventually, he's going to be pulled out of prison and placed in second in command over all of Egypt. And through the wisdom and the favor that God gives to Joseph, he will be used to preserve millions in famine and especially 11 brothers and their father. How did Joseph see these events playing out, though? Was he bitter? Was he overcome with depression and hopelessness? Well, we don't have to wonder what he may have walked through and had to wrestle through in real time, he landed at a very definitive, and he landed at a very certain conclusion. Look over in your Bibles at chapter 45. 
Let's hear from Joseph's own mouth. This is after prison. This is after being placed in second in command. This is during a massive famine where his brothers come to seek food unbeknownst to them under their brother's authority. Chapter 45, verse 4. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. You sold me. God sent me. This becomes even clearer after Jacob's death and the brothers get a little nervous. Now that dad's gone, what's Joseph going to do? Turn over to Genesis 50. Verse 18, his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You meant evil, but God meant it for good. What I think becomes clear in reading through Genesis and this account is the certainty of God's providential care. God is most certainly working all things together for Joseph's good and God's glorious plan. God made a promise back in Genesis 3.15 that sin and Satan would not have the final word. God would provide a man. He said, "I, I will do this. I will provide a man who will deliver my people and will set creation right. God affirmed that promise to Abraham. He reaffirmed it to Isaac. He reaffirmed it to Jacob. And God remains faithful to that very same promise, even in the face of evil, injustice, deception, and suffering. That is what we must see as we read through the narrative of Genesis. This same promise unfolded in Genesis 3, 12, 15, 17, 27, 32, is going to be continually true, 37 onward. Our church confession says this concerning God's providence. God, the good creator of all things, in His infinite power and wisdom, upholds, directs, arranges, and governs all creatures and things, from the greatest to the least, by His perfectly wise and holy providence, to the purpose for which they were created. Next paragraph. All things come to pass unchangeably and certainly in the relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God who is the first cause. Thus, nothing happens to anyone by chance or outside of God's providence. Yet, by the same providence, God arranges all things to occur according to the nature of second causes either necessarily or freely, in response to other causes. What is our confession teaching that the Bible proclaims? Something so very important. We could boil it down to three things. That there is nothing that happens anywhere to any extent which is outside of God's decree. Secondly, God is always the initiator in all his decrees. Thirdly, God will often use second causes, the language of our confession, or indirect means to carry out his will. First cause or second cause. Both causes are most certainly under God's providential authority and decree. Okay, great. Where do we see this actually in Scripture? I'm glad you asked. One of the most amazing 
and clear testimonies of these very truths. It's in the book of Acts. It's in Peter's sermon. Church, Peter understood God's providence. He understood first causes and second causes. He understand that there is nothing that happens anywhere to any extent which is outside of God's decree. And he preached this message. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus Christ was delivered up on the cross according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Comma. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You see, Genesis 37 reminds us of how second causes function in God's providence. Acts 2 proclaims it. Genesis 37 displays it. And in this passage that we've read in 37, we see two specific second causes that are used by God to accomplish His will. What were they? Well, one, the strife and division within Jacob's family. God's purposes is to bring Israel into Egypt to accomplish his good design. That's where we're going to be next week. Israel is in Egypt, according to God's plan. How does he get Israel into Egypt? Well, in the Psalms that we read, that he actually sent Joseph ahead of them in shackles and chains to prepare and to preserve his people. The strife and division in God's in Jacob's family are God's purposes and the second cause by which God accomplishes his purpose. I've got a man in Egypt because I need a family in Egypt. Secondly, another cause, the second cause, would be the scheming and the plotting of Judah. Judah, God uses Judah's plan to sell their brother for profit into slavery to get him to Egypt by way of Midianite traders. God's decree, second cause. Why is this so important? It matters not only to understand your Bible, but to understand your life. It shows us that God uses the willing plans of sinful men without Himself being the author of sin or coercing anyone to do so. The brothers did not have to be forced, like puppets, to hate Joseph. They chose to hate him, and they fueled their hatred. Reuben did not have to be forced to attempt to rescue Joseph and say, let's not kill him. Let's put him here, knowing that I'm going to come back later and I'm going to rescue him. God did not have to force Reuben to hatch that plan. Reuben wanted to do that. God was working all things together for good. Now, we must recognize the tension of Scripture at this point because it proclaims both the sovereign decree of God and the freedom of humans to make willful decisions for which they are accountable for. Both are proclaimed here. All of this is under God's providence. A couple of other examples that you can read observationally, and now that you're hearing this, you'll probably see more of them in Scripture. Proverbs 21 says that victory in war is predetermined. Proverbs 21 also says, but careful preparation of your equipment and wise guidance in war is recommended. For all you fatalists out there, sharpen your sword. The random shot of the Syrian archer was the means of bringing down the predetermined death of King Ahab. Uh, this is 1 Kings 22. God says outright, Ahab's going down. And yet in the narrative of 1 Kings 22, an archer randomly draws a bow, lets it go, and hits King Ahab. Both God's sovereign decree, the willful decisions of humans, by which they are accountable for. 
Proverbs 19 says that Ruth was a gift of the Lord to Boaz, just as every wife is to her husband, a gift of the Lord. But in the narrative of Ruth, she met him by coincidence. Was it a gift? Was it coincidence? Ah, well, we see. We know it is most certainly both, because God's decree and the freedom of humans making willful decisions, which they are accountable for, run parallel in Scripture. Church, we need to see this. Because we are so prone to take difficult, unexplainable, unfair events in life and say, this isn't God, this just happened. And then in the very next breath, we gather up all of the circumstances that we deem as helpful and encouraging and as blessings, and we say, that was so the Lord. But the Christian is one who's able to joyfully proclaim all things come to me by the hands of my loving Father, and in His great wisdom and in His holy care, all things are working together for my good. What events in your life might you be tempted to chalk up and just say, that wasn't God? That was just circumstance. That's Murphy's Law. Of course my day happened that way. It's always this way. Is that square with the teaching of Scripture? Is God ruling over all things in His wise and creator care? I would encourage you to see the teaching of a scripture, the Scriptures assuring you that there is nothing outside of God's determined purposes for you. And that purpose, Christian, is to bring you to His Son and to conform you to the image of Christ. We often are so bent towards happiness with little thought for holiness. We avoid pain, and we pursue comfort. And yet sometimes in life, pain comes to us. Sometimes in life, we walk right into injustice, evil, the sin of others. God's great aim is true happiness that comes through holiness. That means God takes up all things and He is working them together for the good of His people to conform them to the image of His Son that He might be seen as the good and gracious preeminent One over all things. When God appears to be absent, evil appears to be triumphant. God's people rest on His most holy and wise providence. Now, I recognize that some may be tempted to think at this point about all this talk of providence, second causes. It's a bit deep. Seems like a theological sidetrack. I can hear the objection, can't we just stick to the topic of the love of God and the grace of God? Very well. How does the love of God help you when you look at Joseph's circumstances? How can a loving God permit the favoritism of the father, which incites the brother's jealousy, which moves them to abandon Joseph into slavery? Tell me. What I'm saying is that if we just pick one attribute of God or one doctrine out of Scripture and neglect the others, we will have an insufficient and a sickly faith. We must see that our God has gone to great lengths to help us see, rejoice in, and rest in His providence. We most certainly have a loving God who is infinitely gracious beyond what we could ever comprehend, and He is all-powerful in ensuring that His most holy and most wise plans will come to pass. Now, I wonder if Joseph sensed that God's providential care was working for him when he arrived in Egypt with these Midianite traders. I know he does in future chapters, but what about as the shackles went from Midianites to Egyptians 
to Potiphar, to prison. Now, Joseph, at this point, he doesn't have the end of the story yet. Joseph doesn't have the benefit of being able to skip ahead 13 chapters and say, oh, I'm going to say God sent me, you sold, it's all, it's fine. We chuckle, but we know something is true here, right? God's providence is a mysterious thing. When we're in the midst of particular circumstances, we are often forgetful that this God is right there among us, working to uphold, direct, and sustain all things from the greatest to the least. Church, my desire is that every single one of you would be so assured of the providential care of God in every detail of your life. From broken down cars, to sickness, to health, to pregnancy, to the loss of a baby, to promotions and layoffs, from pink slips to rays, from denied applications to letters of acceptance that we're putting all of those things and we're getting our arms around all of them and we are able to say all of it. I am confident that all of it is working towards my good as it's being overseen and directed by my God as he seeks to conform me to the image of his son. Everything is under the control of the living God. Did you know there's a but coming? Friends, it's not the sheer majesty of his control that ultimately is the comfort to us. It's the revelation of his great purpose in all of his workings. Bare authority and unmitigated power is not in and of itself comforting. The comfort has to do with the character of the one and the purpose of the one who has the authority. So to just rest and say God is sovereign feels like bark from a tree trying to comfort a wound on my shoulder. It's not quite doing it. And maybe you've thought, well, how is this idea of God's sovereignty ever going to be any comfort to me? What sort of God is this? What is he wielding his power for? What is his great purpose in all of this? Well, all of this talk of God's redemptive purposes in the midst of the innumerable details, it's only comforting because there is a true and greater Joseph. The New Testament doesn't specifically reference Joseph as a type of Christ, but there are certain themes within Joseph's life that are unmistakably opened up for us further in the life of Christ. Just consider what we've heard in this short 37 verses. Joseph was sent by his father to find his brothers. Jesus sent by his father to find his brothers. Joseph's brothers did not receive him, but instead sold him for a few pieces of silver. And Jesus' own brothers, they did not receive him either, but ended up selling him for a few pieces of silver. Joseph was abandoned, rejected, abused. How much more so Jesus the Messiah? Joseph was tempted, eventually exalted to the place of honor. Jesus tempted and tried yet found blameless and exalted to the highest seat of honor. God used the evil deeds of Joseph's brothers to eventually save his people, and God would use the evil deeds of Jesus' brother to save his people. When God appears to be absent, evil appears to be triumphant. God's people rest on his most holy and wise providence. For the evil that should be mine, and the abandonment that I rightly deserve, it's resolved in Christ. God sent His only Son, not simply to make sense of our world, but through Him that we might be reconciled to Him. 
Christian, our confidence in every circumstance is grounded upon the cross of Jesus. Because that's where you find the answer. What kind of God is this? Look to the cross of Christ. Where he gives his only son to forgive and redeem rebels to make them sons. That's the sort of God who says, I am working all things together for the good of my people. To conform them to the image of my son. And that's why we can say, we know. We know that for those who God, who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. The confidence of that statement has everything to do with the confidence of who Christ is. And therefore our rest in his sovereign dealings with us. I take content what he has sent. We're going to sing that in a few moments. He holds me that I shall not fall, and so to him I leave it all. The only person who can sing that with sincerity is the person who knows something of this God as he's revealed himself in Christ. In Christian, we can sing it with great boldness, even through tears and cracked voice. So to him, I leave it all. Father, we do pray that you would Help us in the midst of this life where we know you to be faithful. We know your word to be true. But Lord, we see how often we falter and we doubt. So would you strengthen us? Father, would you come and buoy us up and shore our foundations? Would you strengthen our faith and give us clear vision that we might see and know and rest Not only that you are a God who is over all things, ordaining all things, but that you are the God who is ordained that you would send your Son to rescue your people. Lord, give us great comfort, not only in your majesty and authority, but in your mercy and kindness to us in Christ, we pray. Amen.